So it's my absolute joy to introduce our speaker today. It truly is a joy because he's a dear friend. Um, the first um, time I met Brian, I think he was um, leading a youth group, and then he became the pastor of the church that the youth group was in. Um, and then um, I, I, I very distinctly remember uh, when I was living in America, Ian Nicholson had phoned me up. We'd been sending mission teams, 24-7 mission teams, to Ibiza for um, a number of years. We'd seen some extraordinary things, some miracles take place. Rolling Stone and Reader's Digest and everyone was writing. And Channel 4 had made a TV documentary about what we were doing there. And it was all great, but our problem was that it was working. Um, and uh, one particular guy had become a Christian. And because he was tattooed up and um, had a job as a, a stripper in a, a, a nightclub, um, when we led him to Jesus and we introduced him to one of the local churches in Ibiza, we said, they'll look after you. But actually the church rejected him, kicked him out because he was covered in tattoos and he, they thought he might lead their daughters astray. And so this guy contacted us and said, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I know Jesus is real, but the church has rejected me. And I still remember Ian saying to me, we're either going to have to stop sending mission teams to Ibiza. Uh, or we're going to have to plant something there that can disciple people. It's a very simple choice. And then the conversation went like this. Who on earth could we send? First of all, it's the toughest mission field imaginable. The Daily Mail had just called it Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, there's all sorts of unspeakable things, as well as beautiful things that go on. Um, secondly, it's, um, uh, we've got no money at all to pay anyone. Thirdly, although we're sending mission teams, there's no infrastructure there whatsoever. And they have to be an exceptional person who could plant a church out of nothing, live by faith and trust God for their finances, not get sucked in by a really dirty culture and um, uh, be able to relate to kind of, you know, lager louts who like a bit of a punch up in the street on a Friday night. Who, who on earth is there out there? And I very quickly realized there is only one human being on earth that can fulfill all of those things. And it's my friend, Brian Heasley. And so I remember sitting with Brian saying, Brian, would you leave um, a lovely, beautiful village in Norfolk uh, where all your wife's family live and some of your own family, where you're the leader of a large church that absolutely adores you? And would you move to an island where there is no pay whatsoever for you, no infrastructure at all, and it's undoubtedly a morally dubious place to raise your children? How about it? And to cut a long story short, Brian said, sounds like a brilliant plan to me, let's go. Uh, when we commissioned him and sent him out uh, to head up the work in Ibiza, we asked him in front of a crowd of people, why are you going? He just broke down in tears and started weeping. I thought it was one of the most articulate answers I could have imagined. And they pioneered the work there successfully uh, over seven years, wasn't it, Brian? Um, and got a, the whole thing established, ran an ambulance service, got a, um, uh, premises established, uh, awesome reputation for 24-7 to this day in Ibiza, came back, and now Brian uh, serves as the British director of 24-7 Prayer and does the most amazing, amazing job with all of that. He and I often look at each other and go, how did we get here? 
Um, and uh, the truth is, when you keep saying yes to God, it's amazing where you end up. So we don't put people in front of you who are theoreticians. We try and put people in front of you who are practitioners who are trying to work out how do we do this Jesus stuff in a really confusing, really messed up world. Brian is someone who's doing that faithfully and beautifully. So please put your hands together and welcome Brian Heasley. It's really lovely. Thanks, Pete. Really appreciate that. And uh, it's lovely to be here. I guess there's a little phrase that when you get asked to uh, go and do something that's a little bit on the edge, and it's from Helen Keller, and she said this, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And I guess our faith life is one of a daring adventure. We're called to adventure. So for me, it was just another part of the adventure, and the adventure continues. God doesn't stop, which is uh, reassuring. He wants to journey with us and adventure with us all. And so I'm, I'm excited to be here this morning. Love, you know, obviously I work for 20% Prayer. I work with Pete, so I, I get the idea that you're just about to land the building, and he just flings another idea in. Let's get a barge. You know, did anyone else just pick that up? I'm sure next week you'll have a fleet of them. <laughs> In his, in his mind, anyway. But, and so it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to, to... I think it's a really good idea. You could do holidays as well. and You could, take them over, you could do overnighters on the barge, couldn't you, if you're collective? Maybe if you don't get the building, just get a barge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah, I should read the Bible. We should read the Bible together. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story this morning. I'm going to uh, chat a little bit around what it means to follow Christ and journey with him. And just the, uh, I hope some of it will speak to you and encourage and bless you this morning. So let's read Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. I, I love the Bible. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My mother and father went to Bible college. When we were young, we had to memorize Bible verses before we went to school. And if we had memorized them when we got home, we would get some sweets. And I can't remember the sweets, but I can still remember the Bible verses, which is a, a good thing. So, and the other thing, interesting thing my dad decided to do when we were young was to teach us New Testament Greek after tea. Yeah, because I quote, it could come in helpful. <laughs> it's like, do you know what I mean? When all your friends are coming around for tea, you, you, we just stopped inviting them, basically, because like, you know, afterwards you'd go out in the garden or you'd go and play football. It was like, no, sorry, we've got to go and do alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, eta, zeta, you know, and uh, or still remember it. Yes, I know. And so now as a 45-year-old, it makes sense, Bill. But when you were like 11, New Testament Greek is not the way forward. So, but what I do really, no, if you're 11 and you want to do that, go right ahead. But uh, if, what I do realize is that the word of God does not return empty. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I've, I've been pondering recently with my iPhone that if someone says to me, if I'm thinking oh, I've got a word about peace, I just put peace in the search button on the New Testament part of my Bible and about 200 you know, peace scriptures come out and I find the appropriate one. And, not, and I'm just wondering whether going a bit more old school and memorizing scripture would be a good thing to do. That we, because then we hide it in our hearts. In a world of easy access to information, I think it does, we would do well to embed the Word of God into our hearts and to allow it to sink in and to, you know, to just touch, our, touch us deeply within. So Ephesians 1, I tried to memorize it, but I, I was trying last night and I fell asleep. So uh, we'll just read it, shall we? Ephesians 1. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are Christ's handiwork. We are God's handiwork. And that's not really a very good translation of the word, actually. Handiwork makes it sound a little bit utilitarian, you know, and a little bit like we're some sort of machine that was put together. The actual Greek word that we have here is one called poema, which is where we get our word poem from, where we get our word poetry. We are God's poetry. Doesn't that sound more beautiful? You are God's poetry. You are his masterpiece. The New Living Translation says we are his masterpiece. And, and, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. We are God's masterpiece you are God's masterpiece can you just turn to the person next to you and say you're a masterpiece <laughs> with meaning and absolute sincerity you are a masterpiece this morning God is at work in us God is at work on us he wants to bring about all that is good and develop our characters and mold us into all he wants us to be when, when I was about 21, I heard a man pray a prayer, and it was this, God, make me the man you want me to be and not the man I want to be. And I pray it pretty regularly. And, you know, it's a good prayer. And what, what I love about that is that when, when we connect with the divine, when we connect with God, that he, he looks at us and he says, you're my masterpiece. You're my masterpiece. And sometimes we find that quite hard to accept. But it's a bit like this. Michelangelo said this. I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And God has seen something in each one of you and he's carving. He's working in you. There's that beautiful line in the Bible that talks about we go from glory to glory. That word is kabod, and it means heaviness, the weight, the heaviness of God. But we go from, he we, it's almost like we put on weight in God. Not in the physical, okay, just so you're not stressing out. But if you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to become a Christian because I'm going to get chubby. You know, but, uh, but we do. We, 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 put, we put on more and more of God. He works in us, and he transforms us, and he looks at us, and he sees us in the marble as it were, and he carves until he sets us free. And that's kind of what's been happening in my life, is that God has been carving and setting me free. You know, and our world will tell us all sorts of different things about what is a masterpiece. You know, especially humanly speaking, I was reading in one, in one newspaper that UK men spend 4.5 hours a week on their appearance. That's good. Women, 6.4 hours a week. 
teenagers 7.7 hours a week on their appearance. That's like a practically an entire working day. I, my children don't. I've got two sons. They don't spend time like that on their appearance. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they, they might do, but I haven't noticed it. It, it, it. You go in that room. Have you got a child? If you've got a child, you go in that room. It's called, and they have what I call a floor drobe. Have you seen it? You know, it's like, basically, I'll just take my clothes off wherever I, wherever I am and I'll just leave them there and, and the hope that some strange figure called a mother will come in and clean them all up. We've decided long ago we weren't going to, but then sometimes it looks like they're living in a squat of like, you know, so you have to go in and, you know, anyway, that's got nothing to do with appearance. That's just my own angst about having teenage boys who don't put their clothes away. So, <laughs> we have this outward thing about appearance that's incredibly difficult. At least once a week, 36% of men, 60% of women, 78% of teenagers have negative thoughts about their looks. It's all this outward stuff, you know, outward stuff. And, and God says, you're a masterpiece. And you're thinking, yeah, but you should see me naked in the mirror. I'm not a masterpiece. You know, but God says, you are a masterpiece. And I, even me, I get stressed, even though, like, not that I have, like, not that I'm an oil painting, but I was like... <laughs> I was the other day, I was looking at this, uh, uh, the new Bourne film's coming out. We got that, yeah, look, he's the same age as me, Matt Damon. <laughs> so what we did, we superimposed his head on my body. <laughs> no, but you, do you know what I mean? Our culture stresses us out. We, we, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to go to the gym more. I need to drink more Nutri-Bullets. I need to you know, do all that kind of stuff. I wanna, not that I want to look like Matt Damon, but we're under this kind of pressure. We're under this pressure that says it's what happens outside. And God all the time is saying, but you're my masterpiece. You're my handiwork. You're, you're, you're a beautiful individual who I love and who I think is special and whom I treasure. So I've got a friend, and she's a really lovely friend, and she's an art expert. She lives in Ibiza. And so I, I was speaking to her on Facebook, as you do, this week. And uh, it's not really speaking, is it? It's that typing thing. But, uh, and I said, what is a masterpiece? And so she said this to me. Subjectively, I would say a masterpiece is like when you know you found love. It causes a chemical reaction like a physical attraction. It makes you wonder. A bit like a miracle, I guess. It surely has something to do with how much energy the creator put into it. It reflects that. His passion becomes the viewer's passion. You know instantly when you encounter a masterpiece. So as an expert, she knows what a masterpiece is. But God is creator God. He has created all things. He has made our universe. So he knows what a masterpiece is. He's the ultimate expert. And he says, you are his handiwork. You are his masterpiece. And I don't know really where you stand with that, but I don't always feel like a masterpiece. When I was young, when I was 11, we moved to England. I'm, in case you're worrying about my accent, I am not from the West Country. Okay. I don't know if you, if you, some people get that. I was born in Belfast. <laughs> so was someone else. Anyway, so it's, it's good. We are, I'm not alone. Thanks, Joe. And uh, so I was born in Belfast, grew up in Essex, messed badly with my accent, and then lived in Norfolk, and then obviously lived in Ibiza, and now live back in Norfolk again, which, from which I drove this morning, which was wonderful, clear roads. Anyway. And... Uh, we moved to England when I was 10, and my mother died of ovarian cancer when I was 11. So this is my journey I'm going to tell you about, how that God saw the angel and carved until he set it free. And, uh, sorry, I, I still cry. 
It's all right. It doesn't, doesn't worry me as long as it doesn't worry you. I know we're in, we're in sorry and you will hold our emotions in a little bit. But uh, <laughs> so sorry. And, uh, and so she died, when I was, she died when I was 11 and I really struggled to cope with that. I, I, I disengaged from school. I used to spend days bunking off school and going to London and going to the National Gallery actually and just sitting in the National Gallery looking at paintings and just spent loads of time and I, I, I didn't do very well at school. You know, and so I, I really kind of didn't feel like I fulfilled my potential. And as that grew, I ended up needing to sort of numb the pain. And I was pretty angry with God. I thought God killed my mum, if I'm honest. God can cope with your honest, honesty, by the way. He really can. And I thought that God had killed my mum. And so I uh, just had this pain, this well, you know, the grief of an 11-year-old that wasn't very well processed. You know, nowadays we do counselling. This was 1981. I went back to school and I remember going into the headmaster's office. He gave me an orange squash and a custard cream and said, are you going to be okay? And I went, yes, and that was it. Uh, the PTA came round, you know, whilst we were still in grief and gave us a box of Quality Street. And that, so, you know, there wasn't like a lot of help. You know, do, do you know what I mean? Some Quality Street and a custard cream and you'll be fine, Brian. Uh, so, and I just didn't deal with it very well. And so I ended up, yeah, disengaging from school, hanging out in galleries, which is a really strange thing to do, and, uh, and uh, spending time hanging out with friends, smoking marijuana, smoked a lot of marijuana, and uh, ended up just disengaging, trying to get to sleep at night by smoking more and more weed, trying to deal with the blackness and the darkness in my mind, and trying to think, well, at least if, I can, if I'm stoned, I won't have to think, was probably what I, where I was at. I eventually ended up getting expelled from sixth form college. I became homeless, so my, it was, became increasingly difficult for me to live at home because I was difficult. I was a challenging child. Uh, I ended up living in a Vauxhall Chevette estate with my friend, Terry Carpenter. We crashed there for a little while. And, uh, and you know, various little homeless scenarios in council estates in Essex. As a real little subculture, I got very involved in of selling drugs and smoking drugs and selling drugs and smoking drugs. And uh, eventually, I ended up going to prison. I went to prison four times. Uh, I went to prison for lots of different things, mainly just anger issues and greed, really. Uh, I tried to rob someone when I was homeless, tried to rob a, a Curry's, you know, I, tried, I did lots of different things and got in a fight. Got in a fight on Christmas Eve where I accidentally headbutted a policeman and that totally ruined my Christmas. And, uh, and, and, you know, and so all of that kind of stuff. And it wasn't, none of it, I'm not proud of it and actually I don't like to be the person who gets to tell the story. I think we should celebrate more of the stories of my wife Tracy who when she was five gave her life to God and still and it's just been faithful. They just, do you know what I mean? She's just been faithful. And if you've just been faithful, we need to celebrate faithfulness. And I just didn't deal with it very well. And we can all see why. But I, I didn't deal with it very well. So I ended up in prison four times. And if I'm honest, I was 11 stone and I had long hair. So I probably look more like a criminal now than I did then. Do, do you know what I mean? We did this thing with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, we, we went around the, cathed the Archbishop's tour of cathedrals and so I'm the director of 24-7 prayer as you've heard in GB and so I'm standing with the archbishop and someone said you see that guy with the archbishop and I'm trying to look very prayerful and friendly they said you see that guy with the archbishop that's his bodyguard <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> and then so I think someone said well how do you know and then they went just watch him so I don't know what I don't know what I was doing I was like smiling looking prayerful you know here we are in a cathedral I'll talk to you anyway so I looked, more like, I looked more like a criminal than I did then. 
but I had a real messy time of it, and, I, and in and out, in and out, and I, I couldn't go home, in and out of prison, in and out of prison, and really didn't feel like I was a masterpiece. But what you have to understand is this, that in Psalm 139 it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That I was God's masterpiece. When I was born, God smiled. When you were born, God smiled. God's primary expression towards each one of us is a smile. That when I came into this world, God was happy. He looked down with pleasure on me, and I was his masterpiece. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that we are God's masterpiece. But also we need to do this. We need to look at other people through the lens of Psalm 139. We need to stare and see those that are broken, those that are helpless, those that are hopeless through the lens of Psalm 139. That God did not mess up when he made them. God didn't make a mistake. They aren't some form of broken prototype. They are his creation who he loves and treasures. And God saw that in me. And all you would have seen was a broken guy. But God saw a masterpiece. And we need to look at one another and say, you are. God's masterpiece. When people come into our midst who are broken and who are hurt and who are desperate and who are needy, we're God's masterpieces. It says on the back of your iPad, designed in California, assembled in China. We won't go into the ethics of that. You were designed in heaven, assembled on earth. We were designed in heaven and assembled on earth. We used to work with uh, prostitutes in Ibiza, and I don't even like calling them prostitutes, because you know when a girl is young, that's not in her mind, that's not her dream. She doesn't think, when I get older, I want to be a prostitute. That's life, throwing loads of really bad things at her, and bad choices, and difficult situations, and poverty, and all of that. And so we looked at them as beautiful ladies. I could show you a video of a prostitute leading worship, singing, Beautiful One. You know, because we looked at them and we said, you're worth something. You can lead worship here on our service on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. You're beautiful. And so we need to look at people through that lens. We worked with lap dancers. And one lap dancer who was a friend and still a friend on Facebook, which is interesting. But uh, she put on her Facebook status one day, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And the heart is, you know, in Latin, the heart is core. God looks at the center of who you are. He doesn't worry about that we don't look like Matt Damon. He looks at in your core, and what he sees is beauty. And he spends his life chiseling to set it free, set it free and working on us and setting us free. So there was me in prison, broken, in and out, nightmare. It wasn't good. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't somewhere I really wanted to be. All that time, I kind of felt like I was a Christian because I'd said a prayer when I was five, but I was really struggling with it, as you can imagine, when you're really struggling big style with it. And it was very difficult, very, very challenging. And so I remember whilst I was in prison, the, you know all that Bible verse stuff and all that stuff that happens in, in, that happened when I was young. The first guy in my prison cell, I get in, he's sitting reading the Bible. And he says, oh, I'm a, I've just become a Christian. Do you know anything about this stuff? 
New Testament Greek, you know what I mean, all of that. I'm like, I remember trying to go, no, but yeah, I couldn't. I ended up having to explain to him bits of the Bible in the cell. And the thing about being in a cell with someone is you can't get away from them. You can't, it, you know what I mean? It was 23 hour a day bang up in Chelmsford Prison. It was horrible. And there was this stalker Christian about one foot away from me everywhere I went. And then I had a lawyer, by, not I had a lot, you know, I got a legal aid one, obviously. And, uh, they, and she was a Christian. And she, so she starts talking to me about Jesus. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm locked up with one. When I get out to see my lawyer, she's a Christian. Eventually I got out, my probation officer was a Christian. Jolly bloke. Honestly, when I broke my probation once, I ended up having to go back in prison. He came into my holding cell, picked up a Bible that he had in his pocket, threw it at me and went, you should read that, Brian. <laughs> I'm pretty sure probation officers aren't allowed to do that. But I was like haunted by Christians. Do you know what I mean? They, they didn't let me go. So, so this is all my time in prison. I've got all these Christians following me around, like stalking me. It's, it's like, <laughs> like God is some divine stalker. And he sends Christians along the way. And then in the end, I read this Bible. I got to Isaiah 59 and it said this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. And in that moment, me, this little broken masterpiece, realized that I had just been ignoring the painter and the creator. And I turned to him, put my hand up. And he reached in and changed my life. Reached in and touched me. Preached just, it was just, I just remember it could, like yesterday, just there. And it wasn't about some massive physical transformation. It was a sense of peace, a sense of joy that came into my probation office, my probation room where I was in this hostel. God just broke in. He broke in. And all I had to do was just reach up and say, I see this in your word. Your arm is not too short that it cannot save and you will reach in and touch me. And there he was, available, reaching in to touch me. And I don't know where you're at today, whatever your situation is, but God reaches in to touch. I love this from Michelangelo, the creation of Adam. Don't you love that? I've actually never seen it in purpose. I couldn't bunk off school and get, my whole, get to the Sistine Chapel. It was just too far. And uh, do you... See, look at God's arm, the muscle, the yearning, the tension in it. It's like he's breaking down. They say that the canopy behind God in that picture is shaped like a brain, like a dissected brain, because all of God's fault and all of God's passion and all of God's energy are focused on you. And inside that canopy, there's all of heaven almost urging God on, and God is stretching down. And all Adam has to do is almost flick his finger out, and God comes, and God connects and God brings life, and he creates masterpieces. And that's what I believe happens whenever we connect with God. This sums it up so much more for me than even my words, that God is yearning to connect with man. Whenever we are praying for others, whenever we are you know, thinking about those who don't yet know him, this God is in heaven yearning to connect and to bring life to his masterpieces, and we become a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. God makes all things new. God makes all things new. He comes and he connects with each one of us and he makes all things new. I was at a baptism in, a, in EB for once. The Bishop of Europe was doing it. And as, as at the end, he walks around with a big brush and he sprinkles everybody with water as he walks up and down the aisle and he says, remember your baptism and keep the faith. 
And if you have been a Christian for a long time, can I just say today, remember this. There was a point where God came to your life and he made all things new. Remember your baptism and keep the faith. Allow that to empower and inspire you that if he can change you, he can change others. If God can make a difference in your life, he can make a difference in other lives. And God is in the business of carving angels and setting them free from the marble. And what did I learn in this journey? Well, I learned lots of things, and I'm still learning loads of things. But I learned this. God is relentless in his persev- and, is, and perseveres in coming after you. God is relentless, and he perseveres in coming after you. God does not give up easy. God does not give up easy. I like that. I like that. Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from his love. His love is relentless. His love is relentless. Whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, God's love for you is relentless. Wherever you're at, his love for you is relentless. Whether it's going well for you or going bad for you, his love for you is relentless. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. History echoes with his love for us. It comes down through the ages it sings out from the pages of the Bible it sings out in the testimonies of the lives of changed men and women it is that God loves us and he loves us and he loves us and he is relentless in his pursuit of us and he will persevere with us and he keeps working and he keeps chipping and sometimes you know what I do I pick up broken pieces of marble and I stick them back on myself you know little bits of insecurity little bits of stuff that i carry from my past and god comes in again and he gently just removes it and he because he loves me he loves me and he's relentless in his love for me and that's what i've learned is that he perseveres and what can we learn from that how do we apply a testimony because if we're already in it's like well how does that work for me a couple of things that i would love us to think about today is one that we view others through the eyes of god that we don't ever look at anybody in any other way than God would look. It's not always easy. I'll tell you a really fascinating story. I joined the church that I left as a senior pastor. I joined there from prison. When I, when I joined there at 20, I was smoking 20 a day. I was on probation and I was unemployed. Okay? When I left, I was a senior pastor of a church and pretty respectable. And that's fine. And, you know, I was quite sort of respectable. <laughs> God will see that you are put in communities that look at you and love you and bring peace and stand with you. And you have to be that community. You're going to grow. You're probably going to grow to more than four services. You're probably going to need to rethink all sorts of things over the years. But if you continually look at people through God's lenses, they will always want to come and be here because they will know that you view them as a masterpiece. So when I moved to the church that I was at, they viewed me differently than I even viewed myself. My wife, she looked at me differently. She was training to be an accountant at the time. And in, on Sunday morning, she played the saxophone. She, do you know what I mean? So, and I thought she's given me the eye. Do you know when I joined from prison, I was like, 
I'm, I've got to get a Christian girlfriend. That was number, not number one priority, growth in my faith. But, you know, it's it a close second. And she's there, and, she, and I thought, she's looking at me, she's definitely looking at me, and she's looking at me, and I was like, I'm looking at her, and I, every Sunday I'd be looking at her, and she'd be looking at me. And then afterwards I found that she's actually short-sighted, so she can't, or long-sighted, she can't actually see, like, much further than that, so she was never looking at me. But I ignored that part of information and pursued her and uh, when she started going out with me someone said Brian I don't think you've got this right she's definitely not going out with you because she's looking for a man with a career prospects and a car and I was like oh my goodness you know what I mean I didn't even drive or anything but anyway Tracy saw f- we have to have faith we have to have faith in one another see others through the lens that Christ sees us that God sees us what else do I learn is this that if God perseveres with us we need to persevere with others yeah and perseverance comes in prayer. 1981, my mother died. She's a Christian, by the way, and I will see her again. So, you know, it's all good. A bit painful at times, but, you know, it's all good. It's why we believe. Where, where oh, death is your sting? There's a little something in it of pain and grief, but, but long-term, eternal, no sting, no sting. So, same time, my brother Paul, he kind of, my elder, I've got four brothers, and I grew up in a, like a man house. It's like a nightmare. They, if I, they saw me speaking there, they'd be laughing at me. Go, oh, look at him, big lad crying. <laughs> anyway, they're Northern Irish as well, so they give you a bit of a hard time. But Paul, when he was in 1981, he, he, we both walked away kind of together. And three years ago, Paul came back to the Lord. And my dad, I said to my dad, isn't that wonderful that Paul's come back to the Lord? And my, and my dad said, yeah. He said, I prayed for him every single day, every single day. 2012, 31 years every single day. We need to learn to persevere. For those who don't yet know Jesus, we need to learn to persevere. For those who are far from him, we need to learn to persevere. My friend Albert went to Amsterdam in 1980 to smoke weed with his friend, with his girlfriend he was living with. And they were listening to a band. And the band was playing, and at the end of the band, this guy came up and said, do you like the band? My friend Albert, not a Christian, no Christian background, no Christian home. The guy came up and said, do you like the band? The band were Christians. And I went, oh, that's good. And the guy said, can we pray with you? And he said, no, you can't pray with me. And the guy said, listen, I'll just pray with you, please. And he goes, all right, then pray for me. So the guy prays for him. And Albert, at the end of his prayer, he goes, he goes like this. He goes, you see, it didn't work. Walks off. Goes back to England. Imagine the guy in Amsterdam, the missionary, directly put that in his letter back home, prayed for a guy, didn't work. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It just didn't work. Six months later, my friend Albert has a cancer scare. There's nothing, nothing wrong, but it made him think about his eternal destiny. He gives his life to Jesus. Leads his girlfriend to Jesus. They get married, lead their children to Jesus. Leads two of his sisters to Jesus. Leads a friend to Jesus. All the guy in Amsterdam has is, you see, it didn't work. But let me tell you, every time we pray, something happens. Every time we pray, something happens. That we may not always see the results of our prayer because we live in a results-driven, instant, immediate culture but that kind of fights against perseverance. Romans 12 says, Therefore do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And one of the patterns of this world is immediacy, which kind of sometimes throws us off perseverance. We need to learn to persevere and not give up. If pe- people didn't give up on me, people didn't give up on my brother, people don't, if you don't give up, you will see breakthrough. It may not be in your lifetime, but we need to be the people of perseverance. We need to look at others through God's eyes and we need to persevere. I see them as you've seen them, God, and I will persevere. Like 
Jacob in Genesis 32, I will not let go. I will not let go. God is looking for a tenacious church who will not let go, who will persevere, because God answers people who persevere. Don't give up. Please don't give up. Don't give up if you've got a child who's not with Jesus. I'm sure my dad must have had an absolute, I don't know, I can't, I've had, I, 20-year-old and an 18-year-old son. So that's the ages where it all went wrong for me. I don't know how he coped visiting me in prison. I don't know if I could cope. But he persevered. He didn't give up. And we must persevere, not give up. Because we are God's handiwork. We are his masterpiece. You are, you are, and all of you are. You're a beautiful bunch of masterpieces. And God is looking to bring more, to connect with more, to reach down and touch more, because life with him is phenomenal. Life with him is peaceful. Life with him has struggle, has tension, but life with him is so much better than life without him. So much better than life without him. So my challenge today is that we be a people who look at others through the lens of Psalm 139 and that we persevere. We don't give up because we are God's masterpiece. And I reckon he wants to bring more into the gallery, loads more into the gallery. So I'm going to pray. Is that okay? Father, I thank you for letting me do group therapy in front of a load of people. And uh, it's really helped me. I feel much better now. And... Uh, <laughs> But, sorry, and I do pray right now, Lord, that your spirit that is wonderful and gentle, Holy Spirit, we invite you, we invite you. God, I invite you on those parents right now who are maybe sometimes just look at the kids and feel like giving up, or those wives whose husbands are away from you who feel sometimes like giving up. I pray for a spirit of perseverance to come. And Lord, for those of us that sometimes don't feel like we're God's masterpiece, I pray that we would come and feel the gentle reassurance of your love and the fact that you like us. In Jesus' name, amen.